Welcome, my name is Rachel Miller and this is Haunted Midwest, a show that discusses the paranormal right from my hometown, Tulsa, Oklahoma. We'll be discussing the findings and the urban legends as well as the history of Oklahoma and its neighboring states. If you're a firm believer in the paranormal or just a casual historian, our goal is to discuss the different opinions on the paranormal as well as the origins of these legends. From the famous Hex House to the not so well-known Oaklawn Cemetery, if you'd like to be a part of our upcoming show and have a story that you would like to share about our upcoming topics, you can email me at hauntedmidwestshow at gmail.com. We have our first guest, uh, Bo Llewellyn, with us. He has published six books and runs his own paranormal team. It's great to have you, sir. Thank you so much for being on the show this early in this production. Hey, Rachel, it's really nice to be here. It's, uh, it's an honor. I've heard a lot about you and I'm excited to be on your show. <laughs> well, hopefully it's all good things. Absolutely. Uh, so, I guess we'll start off with the most basic of question. How did you get into the paranormal? Did an event in your life change your perspective? Or was it just something you were always drawn to? So, whenever I was really young, I had a couple of interesting experiences that led all the way up to my teens. I've written a lot about it in my memoirs that are up available on Amazon, but the short Cliff Notes version was that there's just a ton of occult activity in the town that I grew up in. There was plenty of tales that gave a, like a macabre version of some Luciferian activity that happened behind the scenes and this very church-oriented small ranching town and it just developed from there where that I would talk to key people and I would find out more and more from forest rangers to people that were just around the town that were influencers and you would find out that these stories had some substance to them so my first blush really on finding out about the supernatural came from a cult and then later I started encountering more paranormal items and even a uh, even a not a cattle mutilation it was a horse mutilation oh, geez. by the time I was I think I was 17 at that time could have been 19 and I spoke to some of the park rangers at a at a I don't want to say the name of it but it was a large resort that has like lots of people that fly there to go to it so I worked there as a front desk clerk from the time I was 15 to 17 during the summertime and I would talk to the park rangers about this paranormal event that happened in this resort where this it was really weird Rachel like what would happen is this one room on the second floor when we would rent it out we would not rent it out unless we were packed because people would go into the room and they would drop down their luggage or whatever then go get something to eat in our, in our dining area. When they'd come back, their luggage would be either packed back up into their suitcase or unpacked. Jeez. And they would get really upset about this, understandably so, because they thought the bellhop or, or someone in cleaning had came in and, and like rummaged through their stuff. And so that was hard to explain. But what was even harder to explain is that these doors that they had on them were from like the 70s and I swear they were they were made to like keep radioactive material safe inside because <laughs> they were made of this thick steel and they had one of those bolts that went across it so whenever you walked into your room 
unlike the new ones that have the latch that kind of fold over, these actually had almost like a deadbolt that would go across. And it was just add, added a layer of security for the guests. So that way they knew somebody from front desk or housekeeping wasn't just going to walk in on them. Peace of mind. And there was no way to lock it from the inside and not be inside. So there was never an issue with somebody deadbolting themselves out of the room, except for this room. So we would get, I think I had three while I was there, while I was on staff during my years there, that the maintenance would have to come up, take the hinges off the door, remove the door because it was dead bolted from the inside. Now explaining to a customer, a guest, that's staying at this high-end place, why this room just bolted magically from the inside, it to the, there was one person that thought there was a thief that was inside that had escaped through the window, but the window was really like freaking cock shut. There was no way to open it up. So I'm talking to the park rangers about this paranormal activity in one of the break rooms. And we had a pretty big refuge area that was around this place. And they said, well, strange things have been happening around these woods for a long time. And they told me about finding severed deer's heads up in the trees, nailed to the trees by these, uh, by nails. And the on the deer's face and on the tree were these arcane etchings done in blood, presumably the deer's blood, but the deer's body, anything else was not found. Now, any hunter will tell you that the way you clean a deer is you hang it up by its hind legs and you clean it that way. To nail something up like that against a tree and then try <laughs> trying to clean it that way is counterproductive like if you were <laughs> dumb enough to like try to clean a deer that way it would be a lot easier just to do it on the ground or use the antlers and tie it to the tree some way but this wasn't for this this was some kind of a ritual and it was done a lot and enough to where that it no longer seemed surprising to the park rangers that's how i got into it so they were just like, so they, they, they this is a pretty, uh, I'd say, pretty normal uh, thing that happened, is finding quite, these heads. Yeah, quite normal. In fact, there were hunters around the area that I would mention it to, and they would say, yeah, you find strange things out in the woods here, which really and truly, it was a big part of a couple of chapters of my book, which was talking about how could this heavily Pentecostal town that I grew up in have cult members like pagan ritualistic sacrificing cult members sitting around the community and not being spotted out when actually it would be very easy for them so I visited with a lot of pagan worshipers and went through their practices and it was strikingly similar to what a Christian would do so if you're if you're going up and you're taking the communion bread and you're taking the, the wine as the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. You know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So that started uh, that started much earlier than Christians. In fact, Christians borrowed that from worshipers of uh, Dionysus for the blood. And I believe it was Demeter that was uh, uh, the, the bread. Uh, like I started doing research into it and like 90, 95% of 
everything that you see at like one of these evangelical churches, like dancing around, talking in tongues, um, uh, doing faith healing and stuff like that. If you drowned out the sound and you took the pretty dresses off of them and you put them in beads and loincloths, <laughs> it would look like they were doing ritualistic spells with one another. So right. for a, uh, a for a cult member to sit in that pew and like just look like one of the norms be very very easy now i'm going to turn this around on you because this is your audience's real kind of first time that they get to hear from you so you know forgive me rachel but i got to ask you how did you get involved in the paranormal what got you and uh, started in this this crazy world that we have that's that's called you know supernatural <laughs> well um Geez, I wasn't expecting that, but um, be happy to answer that. So um, I grew up in a, in a pretty Christian household, and you know that stuff was really—it wasn't really talked about. And I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies, you know, all that, all that stuff. So I didn't really have like an active imagination in the sense of like ghosts and stuff like that. In fact, I kind of steered away from it as a child. Um, I, after 9-11, my father lost his job and we had to move to Texas. And then we, a couple years later, we moved back to Oklahoma, where I'm from, and we moved into a house. And uh, it's actually the house I'm still currently living in, moving out pretty soon, but I'm currently still here. Um, but this house is what actually started my uh, paranormal, I guess, not, I wouldn't say love, but uh, I guess entrance interest in it uh, when I first got moved into the house again I wasn't like into the paranormal didn't really think about it you know that wasn't what I was supposed to do as a Christian but I remember the first night we were there we didn't have our beds or anything yet uh, that was still in Texas and we slept on mattresses and it was just there's always been something about this house that seemed very sad and lonely and almost an oppressive feeling I went to the back to go brush my teeth to get ready for bed and there's a little mirror that sits right up over the sink and I remember brushing my teeth and just getting ready and I, I know it sounds very cliche like a horror movie but it, exactly what happened I still remember it to this day I looked in the mirror and there was a man staring right back at me not happy at all just not just completely like I was invading I was just I did something wrong you know like your parent looks at you when you've done something wrong it was that kind of look and I turned around nothing now I kind of pushed it away you know didn't want to think about it quick, quick question Rachel yes. did you recognize the man at all did he have any features that you found familiar there were, I had never seen him before in my life I still remember what he looked like but I had never seen him before in my life it was somebody completely foreign to me um, he just looked like an older man, probably about his, let's say about 80s, mid-80s. Um, his face was kind of sunken in, pale. I can't remember too much from that, but I remember that's exactly about how he looked. And ever since then, um, things have just been weird in my house. Uh, I went through a really tragic time where I was actually around, I want to say around dead people a lot. I know that sounds awful, but... I had to get away from school and help with my grandfather as he was dying. And 
that kind of brings back to a theory that I want to talk about sometime on my show is if you linger around death or people or been around people that have died, you know, around people that have died in your life or around that, can it affect you to being more open to the veil of the paranormal? Because before then, before this house, nothing really happened to me. And then after I got back from being in the funeral home for a while, being in, you know, well, I would have to say nursing home and then funeral home, um, things just went downhill from there. And to make it long story short, uh, I had experiences in the house, things happened, and it just made me want to dwell more into, or dive more into what this is, instead Rachel, of just being afraid. That's a beautiful story. That's a great way to start. It's very organic. It's it's because it was it was influencing you personally. You know, you bring up an interesting topic there. <sighs> the macabre setting of being around death can certainly bring into your mind certain elements that you don't really think about very often. And I think that people like morticians that are mm -hmm. around death quite a bit seem to be less freaked out by the presence of, of of a corpse of course and if you if you get past that and you're no longer wowed by the sight of death you also become like used to it in some way Mm -hmm. And in, in my dealings, whenever, because whenever I wrote my first book, I was very fortunate. Uh, I was able to go into a, a funeral home and get walked through the process of preparing a body for the grave. And oh, wow. I, I needed it so that way that I could fulfill a chapter in my book and make it authentic. So as I was talking to them, it was, I just couldn't help it. My paranormal investigator vibe was just spidey senses a tingling and i was just like <laughs> have you ever had like a spirit rise up or you know seen something and the answer was no not only no but the staff was no too so uh they had had paranormal events that had happened but it was outside of the actual chapel the the, the place where they prepared the bodies which i thought was interesting i was thinking wouldn't that be prime real estate for for a ghost to, to be inside of you know wow but uh, I think it the in my opinion is it has to do with the, the the individual the person that is <clears throat> that is sensing or attuning to the the spirits around them uh, what's your take on it that's very interesting. Um, you know, you really don't hear about morgues being haunted. I mean, you hear your stories, I'm sure, but you never really hear of like, oh, I work at a morgue and I see ghosts, you know, morning and nighttime. You know, that is an interesting point that you bring up that you don't see that. Um, I definitely agree with you, though, that I think the more open you are and the more that you're kind of self-aware, I think more happens to you. Because um, I have friends that have gone with me on investigations and they were skeptics and nothing would happen to them but the ones that were willing for something to happen things happened to them in the same exact place now some people can argue and say oh well that's just because they wanted something to happen and your mind you know almost makes up things right and while i can understand that can happen sometimes i've even probably been guilty of that myself um i do think that if you're shut off from it it just doesn't uh, it, I don't want to say it doesn't connect with you, 
but it doesn't show itself. So the fact that if someone works at a morgue and is around death all the time, maybe they're just not, uh, they're not open up to that part. Does that make sense? Sure. Or maybe they're just working around it constantly. It, it, it would be like if you were working in the heat all day long and then somebody came out and said, holy cow, it's freaking burning up out here. And you'd say, I didn't even notice it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you just, it, it's become such a day and day, you know, routine that you don't even see that there might be a, you know, a figure standing next to you or something. You just, you don't, you're not into that. You're, you're doing your job. Um, but that is a very good point. At times I think that the paranormal can be disguised as other things. So it's not easily recognized. The same point you're making, like, hey, if you're around death all the time, can it affect your sensory perceptions when it comes to death i think also there are other factors like mental disorders mm -hmm. that can help to mask the presence of the supernatural i had was fortunate enough after eight years of trying i had breakfast with monsignor patrick the exorcist for oklahoma for the catholic church i had that last year and i got to i was blessed to have an hour and a half with him if you're listening Monsignor, thank you so much. Uh, he was a, a wealth of information, but one of the topics uh, that we spoke about was the concept of mental health and relation to possession. Fascinating uh, points of view from this from this priest that had done ten exorcisms over ten years. One exorcism lasted five years. Um, yeah, his hands busy. <laughs> oh man, okay. and he. Uh, he said that with the demonic levels that there are great and again this is for catholicism so there's a lot of legalities that go into catholicism they like to organize things in a litigious manner so that way that you have precedence and you have to follow procedures and one of the things they do is they organize a lot i think it's the most ocd religion out there but anyway they have lesser demons and they have greater demons the lesser demons in the catholic church they call by different emotional names. So you would call a demon greed or incest or um, spite. Uh, the greater demons like Baal or uh, Bahamut, uh, those demons are the greater demons. Yeah, have you seen the, the movie Hereditary? I have actually. Bitchin' movie. Uh, <laughs> that... It was, yeah, it messed me up for a little bit. Not so much oh. because of what was going on, but it was just the visual of it. There were the a few times where I just went, ooh, I, mm, I'm uncomfortable. Oof. The kid scene with the telephone poke. Oh, I had such oh. a hard time with that. It crushed me. <laughs> I but I, that messed me up. I loved the, the wonderful ride that the filmmaker took me on. And uh, the, the demon, I don't want to give it away, for those that are listening, but the demon involved in that, spot on accurate. Um, that's a, a greater demon. As I was talking to the Monsignor, uh, I asked him, I was like, you know, how can you tell the difference between somebody that's possessed and somebody that's just schizophrenic? And he brought up a great point. He said, you're, you're saying that as if they're two exclusive items. When, when in fact, uh, someone that's schizophrenic can convince themselves that they are possessed so they can then act that way and so in a sense are they not possessed by even the spirit of something that is off-center in their mind causing Fred to think that he is a possessed man named Sam 
and so in some way he has actually given himself over to possession it's just not a spiritual possession it's a possession of the mind likewise if somebody is actually possessed by one of these demons they can fracture your mind whereas that they it's like a lovecraftian madness it's one of my i write a lovecraftian novel series called magica and i delve into madness all the time so i dug what he was saying he was saying that if you're possessed and this thing is churning around in your brain every minute of every day giving you these these cruel thoughts about yourself and about other people that eventually it grinds you down until you have one of these mental disorders so he said with the first part if you're just having a psychotic episode that that makes you very vulnerable for spiritual possession so they have a year long observation of a person before they'll do an exorcism i said wait a minute what if you what if you go into the room and she's freaking or he's freaking floating in the air and spewing pea soup all over you he said a year and i was like come on man they're floating and he said nope a year he said the church has rules in place for a good reason you don't want to start performing an exorcism on somebody that's not really possessed if they're just having mental issues and you go in there with some holy water and a cross and you start saying rites they're going to believe that they're possessed and it's going to increase the mental anguish that they're under and it may cause the road to recovery to be longer or just never happen at all it's almost kind of like uh, mind over matter um there's a interesting story about a man and i don't know if it's true or not disclaimer but a man um had got locked had locked himself in a, one of those food trucks on the, like they're frozen in the back to carry like a swan truck yeah. um and he couldn't get out and he was stuck there for hours and hours and he eventually froze to death when they came to get him out or they they saw the truck and they opened it up and he was already dead the food truck wasn't even running but because he perceived that he was going to freeze to death he did again i don't know if that's a true story i would have to look it up disclaimer um i need to do some research into that but even so that just shows how powerful the mind is so going with what you were saying it I mean, no, I don't, I want to believe that nobody wants to be possessed. But, you know, if you go down the deep end and think I am possessed or what if this is happening, I could see how it would develop into not just a mental illness, but just something else entirely. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to uh, back up your comment and say, first of all, awesome story. Second, I have a lot of pagans that are friends of mine. In fact, I think the majority of my friends are pagan. And I have this wonderful witch out of Louisville, Kentucky. Her name is Barbara Pretty. She is a generational witch. Her grandmother taught her, and she's lost count of how many gra- uh, grandmothers above her that taught them. She is an immigrant uh, daughter that came in from, I'm thinking that it was somewhere in the Germanics. Gosh, I'm going to going to do her injustice but anyway um she was talking about how that her her grandmother publicly even when they they whenever they came in to america she would start uh making these she was a kitchen witch and she would make these poultices and and potions and uh some of them 
were made to kind of decrease infection, like penicillin. Others were used to increase potencies and male performance. So that's where you get the love potion from, because a lot of it's a little bit of an alcohol, right? So <laughs> the the men would come to her back door and get these potions and get these salves, like if they hurt themselves or if they were having headaches or they were having trouble sleeping. And but publicly, they would throw rocks at her front door and, and uh, tear up her yard and call her a witch, you know, putting on appearances for the other Christians that were living on the street. So it was really weird. But during this this act that she would do, Barbara told me that a lot of this has to do with a placebo effect, where for 100%, the witch is putting focus into that witch's jar or into that potion but it also has to do with the receptive nature of the patient. So if the patient believes it, then it's gonna have an effect. And that goes into the placebo idea. So 100%, you take Tylenol, you're gonna feel better. But you know you're gonna start feeling better even before you hit the Tylenol button. So as soon as you pop the lid open to that thing, like your brain is already starting to produce endorphins that are getting you situated to feeling better it's really strange and if you replace those pills in the tylenol button with just a bottle with just like placebos there's a good chance that after you take them you're going to feel better so it's a symbiotic relationship and that goes to back up what you're saying that mind is over matter that's fascinating it, it really is fascinating to show how powerful the mind is and um i mean i know <laughs> there are times that i have like uh i, I thought i had something and I would take stuff for it and uh, I'd feel better the next day only to find out that, you know, the medicine or whatever I took was expired <laughs> 10 years ago <laughs> and it probably didn't do anything at all, but I felt like it did. So it did. And I, I just think that's, you know, psychology uh, or whatever you want to call it, you know, study the brain, fascinating stuff. And it should definitely be intertwined with the paranormal, I believe, at, at least studied side by side to understand how certain things happen um not to change subject but i just ha had another question for you sure. um this is one that i've actually was really excited to ask you because after you're done talking i'll explain my story my connection with it sure um so i so i went to your page and i saw that you were a part of the recent oaklawn cemetery digs do you mind explaining to the audience what what that's about and can you sh share any findings or sure. anything that happened yeah uh so I was, it was in October, I think it was October 3rd or 4th, and I saw the first article come out that said that they were taking a real look at Oaklawn Cemetery, which I had heard rumors before that that was a place where the mass graves supposedly were supposed to be. But I had heard the same rumors about two or three different locations around Tulsa. I mean, it was a real horrible situation where bodies were being dumped into the river. It was... The numbers, I don't think, are anywhere near what they really were. I think they were much higher in the death toll. So, supposedly, there was this 300-person mass grave that was somewhere out in Oakland. So, I contacted the lead of the uh, uh, for the, I'm starting to forget their title. It was the Committee for Physical Evidence. There we go. And I also contacted the lead archaeologist and said, hey, so you're operating on a budget. Our team's happy to step in and help. We can find volunteers. 
and I think the death knell was saying that I was a member of a paranormal investigative unit, which is right up my alley because you're looking for dead people, and I'm really good about finding dead. So we got a call, got a message back that said we would not like to have you in officially as a member of our team. However, we would be happy to see any results that you get of your studies. Perfect. So we uh, we called up uh, the the Oklahoma. I'm forgetting their name of their their group. It's like the Oklahoma metal detecting organization. Oh, they're going to kill me. Anyway, it's on the article that's on my website, bolewellen.com. And guys, forgive me. But so initially there was something in the neighborhood of 30 or 40 that were going to come down. And the the propensity for, for Tulsa to want to kind of keep its secrets has been kind of heavy on some of their minds. And at the end of the day, we got six. So we had those six technicians out there and we went with them and they took metal detectors that had what's called large coils where mm -hmm. that they could get down three or four feet. And we in a graveyard that should not have gold, silver, iron, tin underneath the ground. We got 111 hits in places where there should be no graves whatsoever. Not only did we get hits, we got clusters of hits. So one area had 40 hits and it was real suspicious because the, the graves went in rows like any cemetery does. So you had like a row of like uh, 20 graves side by side, then a row of 20 graves side by side, then a row of five, and it just magically stopped. And then the next row, it would go to like 15 and magically stop. Then the next row, it'd go back to the regular regular rows. So in those places where there weren't any graves is where we're getting the hits. Almost like maybe the grave diggers back in 1921, whenever this happened in June, late June, they didn't have backhoes back then so the grave diggers would pre-dig four or five graves ahead so if you're looking to get rid of a lot of bodies and you had two three four five open graves like and you were trying to get rid of evidence you might pull a truck up to those and dump them in them so in those areas we found all those hits um we're sitting on a a pretty big story right so we found the bodies 